0: All right, so um, today, today what we're doing is we are actually uh, continuing our series. Uh, and for those of you who have not joined us yet, what we're doing over the next several weeks is doing a series called Explore God tackling seven of the tough questions that people deal with on a daily basis in terms of their faith, their walk with God, um, really how to engage God in present society. And so um, with that in mind, uh, last week we answered the question, is there a purpose in life? And we went through uh, a summary of the book of Ecclesiastes and really answered the question with an Absolute resounding yes, but life and purpose are found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth. And so what we want to do is um, continue this dialogue today um, by asking the question um, for both of uh, people who are Christian here and also people who might have come in just seeking. And finding out uh, these questions as something that are ponderings of their heart. Um, We want to answer the question, is there in fact a God? Is there a God and are there reasons to believe that there is a God. Now, obviously we're here in church today because we believe, yes, there is. Um, We not only believe it, but know it. And we've experienced him and have walked with him, talked with him, and um, have been transformed by him. But we want to give you reasons to believe, even as uh, Peter the apostle wrote uh, in 1 Peter, he was exhorting the church and he said, always be ready to give reasons for the hope that you have always be ready to give reasons for the hope that you have. There are actual reasons to believe what we believe. And we're to do this with gentleness and respect. And so as we consider the question, is there a God, we we want this to be encouraging for those who already have a walk with God and also helpful to those who are considering um, a walk with God today. And hopefully the response will be that you begin a relationship with him. So let's pray and then we'll begin. God Almighty, we thank you that you've given us reasons to believe. You've given us not only your Son, Jesus Christ, but you've given us your creation itself. That, God, you um, have given us both special and general revelation to give us an understanding of who you are, how we're to interact with you, and how we're to um, walk with you in this earth. And so, God, we're asking that today you would open eyes, that you would strengthen hearts, and you would strengthen faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we go. I think we can all start with an understanding that everyone has questions about God. I remember uh, not growing up in a Christian home myself. Uh, though I didn't grow up in a Christian home, I didn't grow up in a home that particularly ascribed to God, I always had a sense of God, right? Um, I remember going to my mother <laughs> when I was a child, and I've shared this with many of you before, and I asked her, I said, mom, you know, is there a God? And she said, oh, even not being a church girl, she she's like, of course there is, baby. And I was like, okay, great. Then if there's a God, then there must be heaven and there must be hell. And mom, am I going to heaven when I die. And she said, of course you are. You're my baby. you know." And I said, okay, great. Mom said it. I'm good. Okay. So that was my understanding of God and heaven and hell. And so whenever I consider God, I, I, I often think about just the childlike state that people are in, even from the beginning. And I had a, a collection of letters that um, children wrote to God, and they probably sounded like something that you might've asked God yourself, or if you had an opportunity to write a letter to him, what you might've thought. At the same time. And so here are some of these letters that children have written. Um, One was from a little girl named Allison, and she said, Dear God, I read the Bible. What does begat mean? Nobody will tell me. (laughs) Love Allison. Secondly, there was a man named Frank, and he said, a young man named Frank, and he said, God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. (laughs) The third one was from a little girl named Lucy, and she said, Dear God, are you really invisible, or is that just a trick? Um, Next, Tim actually got a little bit more serious, and he said, Dear God, I wish there was no such thing as sin. I wish there was no such thing as war. And then finally, Larry summarized it all by saying, Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. And so obviously, you know, he was giving, like considering God. They were also willing to give God advice. And um, what we think is as we consider God, we have to consider the good news. The good news is that God uh, is not intimidated by our questions. Even as we have children um, with questions, we have adults as questions as well. And God's not intimidated by our questions, but neither is the church, Second City. You're welcome here because we all have questions. And I think often about even Isaiah when um, God was speaking to the people and he said to them, Come now and let us reason together. Let us reason together. And though your sins be as red as scarlet, I'll wash you white as snow. And the word reason literally meant to use your intellect, to use your capacity that He's given you to sort through issues and things. And so God's not intimidated by the questions that we have. And as we discussed last week, He's not, uh, doesn't cease to exist because of the doubts that we have. God welcomes those questions. And though we, um, we might not be able to write uh, His name, <clears throat> I'm sorry, a letter to Him, or He's Not answering us with letters in the sky. He does have answers for us in scripture. So today we're going to look at at least two indicators. Again, I have a short time today, and these answers to these questions could go on and on and on. And there are tomes and books and novels written about these uh, questions, but we're going to answer it in two parts today. And the first I wanted to talk about is Is there a God? And the answer is yes, because we have natural indicators such as creation and beauty that point to God natural indicators such as creation and beauty that point to God. Um, We see that in Psalm chapter 19 verses 1 through 4. The writer of the song actually says it this way, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge." There is no speech, nor are their words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world, meaning that God in creation is shouting out his existence to humanity. He's shouting out his existence to the world that he made. Uh, the writer of Romans, which is a New Testament letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul, said it this way in verses 19 through 23. Paul was writing to a predominantly Gentile church, which means that they didn't necessarily grow around the things of God or the law of God or the word of God. But he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, meaning humanity that's searching for him, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made by his hand. So they are without excuse. And animals and creeping things. So, what we see is that God, in His power, in his, in, in his infinite wisdom, in His might, by creation, He gave testimony of Himself. His divine power and His eternal glory are seen in creation around us. And whenever you look to the books of theologians, they call this general revelation. Even in my prayer, as I started out, there were two types of revelation that were made mention of there's something called general revelation, which is God expressing Himself through creation, and then there's another thing thing called special revelation, where God is representing himself through the person of Jesus Christ. He's coming and revealing himself through his son, Jesus Christ. But in this first context, we see that general revelation is spoken of by God in this context. And it's what we as um, uh, researchers, it's what scientists often call um, an idea of God's fine tuned universe. Many of you have um, been involved in the intelligent design debate or in um, involved involved in the idea of God's intelligent creation, creation versus evolution, or different um, matters like that. But what we see, according to Scripture, is that God's left testimony of Himself in a fine-tuned universe, and it's something that we like to call the anthropic principle. How many people have heard of the anthropic principle before, okay? The anthropic principle is basically an idea or the understanding that by God's creation, we can see by observing it, by studying it, by researching it, that everything that is made in the Known universe around us was made for human life, that it's basically created on a fine tooth comb. We don't have um, an opportunity to go into all of the details of these things, but I'm throwing out terms right now that you can go back later and Google. You can go back later and research. You can go back later and read books about. And if you're looking for references, we have libraries of references about these different issues. But in terms of God's fine tuned universe and the anthropic principle, we see different evidences of God's creating things for humanity to exist and come to know him. What are some of those examples? When we look at even science and creation itself, we see that earth's distance from the sun is a testimony of God's perfect design. If you were a little bit closer to the sun as the earth, um, as the, earth the earth would burn up. If you were a little bit further away from the sun, the earth would freeze and it'd be uninhabitable by humanity. We also see that gravitational force, gravitational force that it allows for us to not float off into the atmosphere was particularly designed for human existence. That if it was um, any less, we'd be floating. If it was any stronger, we'd be crushed. There there was a fine tuning of the atmosphere and um, the world around us. We also see that that exists in the atmosphere gases, the combination and concentration of different gases that we have in our atmosphere. It's don't, don't go to sleep yet. Now, how many people are from a science background here? Okay. Well, listen, I appreciate this because I was a pre-med student prior. My dad was a surgeon. I was a pre-med student prior to uh, coming to Christ. And this helps me. Does this help anybody else whenever you're thinking scientifically? Okay. It helps because these are the ways that God's given testimony about himself. And even as a Christian, even if you don't have a science background, these are things that speak to his general revelation to creation, giving testimony of himself that you need to understand. But the at- Atmosphere gases and the combination of them with that we have speak of his glory. How about the charge of subatomic particles that make up our molecular structure? Um, the uh, charge of electrons, atoms, neutrons, right? We see that being um, specifically designed by the hand of God or the human genome and the intelligence necessary for its orderly composition. If you actually pull it apart, you see that it could not have come about by random chance, but it was actually designed by an intelligent. Intelligent input or an intelligent force. All of these things are speaking of the anthropic principle, God's general revelation giving humanity an idea that He Himself was the Creator. Now, as we go through the Explore God series, uh, many people are part of discussion groups. And in these discussion groups, you can unpack some of these topics a bit more. Um, but one of these, uh, the resources for this was a discussion between Timothy Keller, who many of you know as a, um, uh, as a sort of a famed pastor in um, the Manhattan area, and a brilliant scientist who was struggling with the issues of whether or not God exists. And they came to the conclusion that he does exist for at least just five reasons. And these are five reasons that can um, help you. Um, the existence of God, number one, um, the existence of something, meaning you and I or the world around us, the existence of something rather than nothing. That is, our very existence is more likely if a creator exists rather than if one does not, right? It's sort of like that the leaning, the probability, the, the, the statistical um, like idea of whether or not a God exists. It's more probable if there's a creator than if there's not. That's the first conclusion that they came to. Number two, they came to the conclusion that the universe is orderly to a remarkable degree. Some of the things that we were talking about in terms of intelligent design, that, and, and in more than one way, that natural laws are both simple, "...and uniform. They're simple and uniform. The capacity for reproduction is pervasive, and great complexity is produced using only a very small number of elementary particles interacting according to a small number of laws. Any one of these features suggests that it is more likely that the universe is a product of design that <clears throat> than that it is the product of random forces impelling purposeless particles that results in accidental stability." Taken together, these two arguments are even more formidable as an argument for a designer, meaning that we don't see the laws even of nature or the things that hold it together coming about just by chance. The probability points towards a creator. The probability points towards a God, right? Again, why we're going through these things is because God himself commands us in his word to love him, not only with all your heart, soul, and strength, but to love him with all of your mind. Right. To love him with all of your mind. And many people fall away from the faith because they never consider how to love God with all of their mind. They're soulish, meaning they they have an emotional relationship with God. They may have a strength. They might have a zeal for God. They may even have an affection for God and the idea of God. But if they don't love him with all their mind, then eventually they get bumped off the track because somebody comes in with an argument that they can't respond to. What we're doing is giving people an opportunity to base their faith On reasonable evidence. Number three that they came to was value, both moral and aesthetic. It appears to be an objective feature of the world and not merely imposed by human preferences. Not merely imposed by human preferences, a fact much more likely to be the case if a creator exists than if the universe is a grand accident. Number four: Human consciousness and intelligence, or more likely, the products of conscience. I'm sorry, of conscious and intel, uh, conscious and intelligent creator, than of a physical universe devoid of either. And then finally, number five, the last conclusion that they came to is that humans have numerous features that are more easily explained by theism than by metaphysical naturalism. And naturalism is basically just the idea of understanding everything only by the natural laws or the natural forces around us without the introduction or intervention of a creator. And what he's saying is is that they're more easily explained by theism than metaphysical naturalism if only because metaphysical naturalism currently explains all human capacities in strict terms of their ability to enhance survival. Meaning that the only way The reason they exist is because it's, right, a product of survival of the fittest, and they begin to develop these qualities as they're responding to the environment around them, and not because they were designed to function in that capacity. Among such features, though, are the possession of reliable faculties aimed at truth, the appreciation of beauty, and a sense of humor. (laughs) Metaphysical naturalism also does not explain why humans possess, or at least convincingly appear to possess, free will. So all of these things that are intangibles, right, all of these things are not just the product of atoms bouncing off of one another or molecules forming together, but it's the, um, the product of an intelligent force coming and intervening in his creation and designing something according to a plan. These things are part of God's general general revelation pointing to his existence and his force. But it's not just the things such as these, but they're also ethical indicators. Ethical indicators such as conscience and a sense of right and wrong that help point us to the idea that there is in fact a God who arbitrates it all. That we have a sense of conscience. We have a sense of doing what's right or doing what's wrong because there's a God who's put his law upon our hearts. Paul, the writer of Romans continue to express it this way. In verses 14 through 16, he says, for when Gentiles, meaning people who did not grow up around the word of God or the law of God, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. What's he talking about there? That God gave his specific law commandments that were to be obeyed to the Israelites, to this people who were going to be an example to the world around them as he was looking to redeem and reconcile the world to himself ultimately in Jesus Christ. But he says, even without that law, Even without that law, God left himself with testimony. Even without that law, God wrote his law upon people's hearts. And without a knowledge or an appreciation of God, people still call that law their conscience. And even in the midst of their conscience, they still break that law. They still show that they're bound by sin by failing to meet the objectives, even that they think that they're setting out for themselves. How many people have realized that before? It's sort of like I realized that to be a good person, there are certain things that I should do or shouldn't do. And even in that context, without the written law, I realized this prior to becoming a Christian, I failed ultimately myself. And I found myself a lawbreaker because I was bound by what the Bible calls sin, that Jesus comes to set us free from. And Paul went on to write, "They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. I remember the law being written on my heart, feeling guilty about things that I know uh, that I knew rather that I shouldn't be doing, even before anybody ever preached to me. And I knew it and I had this struggle inside of me. How am I going to be set free from the thing that's holding me captive that I don't even know to look to? And it was good news to me. It was like Paul writing in the latter parts of Romans, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. I can actually be changed internally. That though there's a law that I'm breaking over and over again, I'm guilt-ridden over and over again. I'm full of shame over and over again. I can be set free from even that law, not the written law, but the written law that's upon my heart because Jesus Christ came and lived a sinless life. Jesus Christ came and took my punishment on a cross. Jesus Christ, because he was sinless, was raised three days later to give me the hope of not only forgiveness of sins, but new life in him as I choose to turn to him. This is what Paul's giving as a hope. He says, even when their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men's hearts by Jesus Christ. He's gonna do it for all of us. He's gonna judge all of us, regardless of where we start off in him. But ethical indicators such as conscience and a sense of right or wrong are important because as Theodore Dostoevsky said, he said, If God does not exist, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. If God does not exist, everything is permitted, meaning there's no arbiter, there's no standard of right or wrong. It's only people's preferences. It's only people saying that I would choose to take advantage of this person. I would choose to steal from this person. I choose to violate this person when it's convenient for me. But God, as the arbiter of truth, comes in and intervenes and says, no, there's a way that you were created to live in. And when you break my law, you break my commands, you break my design, then life, as you know, it begins to unravel. It begins to be dysfunctional, whether it be relationships, whether it be your mental state, whether it be your body and your health. It does not matter when you break the commands of God expressed through his general revelation, then things deconstruct. But Jesus comes to ultimately restore and redeem all of human life through his life, his redemption, and his resurrection. And that's the good news that's the good news. What we need to understand is that the fact that we all have an innate sense of right and wrong is an indicator of a God who instilled morality in us. There was a man named Alvin Plantinga he's a philosopher. Anybody ever heard of Alvin Plantinga before? Okay. Alvin Plantinga, he's a philosopher considering some of these issues. And when he was considering these issues, he, said that, um, uh, he summarized things this way. He said, could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live, A purely naturalistic way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort, and thus no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there is such such a thing as horrifying wickedness and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the existence of God, meaning that the only way that you can even in a society choose to hold anybody within that society to a standard other than your preferences is if there's an objective source. And we cannot call anything wicked if we don't have an objective source to relate to. But we obviously, in our sense of justice, in our sense of conscience, in our sense of morality, have a source that we're appealing to, and ultimately we see by general revelation that it comes from creator God. Now, these things speak of general revelation, as I've said, but there are also other things that we can look to. Some of these things that we'll look to, we'll discuss in some of the um, other, um, other topics and other issues Uh, But I like it when we look further into scripture and God gives testimony of himself. If you ever read the Old Testament, and many of you have stayed away from it like the plague, uh, you understand, but... When you look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ, it, become, it comes alive to you. And you're able to see the uh, nature of God in the midst of it. And all scripture is God breathed, we believe, and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the men or women of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? We need the Old Testament as well. But even as we look in the Old Testament, we see that there's testimony of God even in things like the law that He gave. Many of the laws seem arbitrary to us, especially today. Um, they were dietary laws. Anybody ever look at some of the dietary laws that the Israelites have and said, but why? Okay, But why? Okay, The thing about it is that God, even in, there, um, in that instance, he said, listen, if you obey my commands, this will show your wisdom to the nations. And they'll say, what other nation is so wise as your nation as to have their God near them whenever we call upon him? But here's the thing about the dietary laws. It was years, hundreds and hundreds of years prior to modern sanitation that we have. And when you see God commanding such things as cooking your food or not eating food with blood still in it, right, where other nations were dying around them because of infection and types of plagues that were being offered out that they didn't understand because of their hygiene at the time. The Israelites were preserved when they obeyed the command of God. And so all of a sudden he was giving supernatural testimony and supernatural wisdom ahead of time saying, if you obey me, if you trust me, I'm giving you an apologetic in your life that will show my existence to the world around you. It wasn't just that. It was things like prophecy, right? We believe that obviously Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of scripture hundreds of years, over a thousand year period is what the um, uh, Old Testament was written in. And men from various socioeconomic backgrounds, professions, and periods of both geopolitical turmoil and peace wrote over 300 prophecies concerning the coming of a Jewish Messiah who would be the savior of the world. Now, the interesting thing about that is it's a statistical improbability for all of them to be fulfilled in one person, but all of them, 300 plus were fulfilled in the person of the historic Jesus of Nazareth. And when you see that Jesus of Nazareth was able to fulfill all of these prophecies, including things that had to do with his birth, his place of birth, his time of birth, the family line to which he was born to, all of these different things point with certainty to things that he himself could not control if he was trying to be the Messiah, but they all lined up in his life to give testimony that there was an intelligent designer coming and intervening in human history to give not just general revelation, but also special revelation. God was in effect, as I like to say, giving a URL address a URL address saying that if you want to recognize the savior of the world, if you want to not only know I exist by my general revelation, but you want to know who I am when I show up, then you need to understand that I'm coming based on these qualifications. And if these qualifications aren't met in the person who claims to be me, then it's not me, right? Anybody ever gone on a blind date before? You can admit it. Okay. And showed up and there were certain qualifications that you had to meet. The person had to meet if you were going to date them. Right. Meaning that they might say, I'm going to leave a rose on the table or, you know, I'm going to be dressed a certain way. And then if you showed up and you sat down at a table and there was some sketchy dude talking about, yeah, you could, yeah, I'm here for you. You know, then you would know that that's not the one that you were looking for right? You would want to go as far away as you, can from, uh, as you can from that person. But God gave you an address saying, when you see these things happen, you'll know it's me and you can respond to me. This is a special revelation of God. He says, I've done it through prophecy as well. And it's not just prophecy. It's also what Hebrews says. And the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four, he said very specifically, it's through what he said what he said, meaning that the wisdom of Jesus Christ when he showed up was the thing that spoke to men and women's hearts in a way that no other philosopher, no other moral teacher, no other sage could. They were, he was basically saying things that were not only true, but that actually as he proclaimed himself the light of the world helped us to understand how life functions and how it functions best, that we don't stumble around anymore in the dark wondering why our relationships are breaking apart, wondering why our bodies are breaking apart, wondering why society as a whole is come go in a spiral downward. But instead, the word of life is explaining things as a creator in such a way where he said, I created it to function this way, and if you follow me, you'll be blessed. If you follow me, it'll lead to life. Hebrews, the writer in verse 1 said this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, not only talking about the Messiah who would come, but also giving them instruction through the prophets. But in these last days, in these last days, which is now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is a special revelation that we're talking about. God said, listen, prior to, the, not prior to now, I spoke to, through people who were speaking about me. Now I'm sending my son and anyone who's seen my son has seen me. And that's the difference. He's saying, I'm going to speak for myself now. He's a radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what God's saying is ultimately, it's not okay just to be spiritual when you consider whether or not there's a God, because when he sent his son, Jesus, he's made his name superior even to the spiritual forces that people a lot of times in our spiritual new agey environment like to cling to, right? It's like I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not necessarily religious. Yes, I believe in angels and I believe in demonic forces, but I'm not really willing to consider any one way right. But what God is saying is there is only one way. And it's only through the special revelation that he gives in his son, Jesus Christ, because ultimately he's saying, I'm speaking for myself. I'm showing you that if you want to know that there is a God, look to general revelation. If you want to know that there is a God, look to my son who came, lived sinlessly. Died and by a supernatural event was resurrected from the dead to show with power that he was in fact the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say it this way He says that not only are we to look to God, but he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What that means is because he lives after his resurrection, not only is he a creator, but we're going to face him on one day in judgment. And in that judgment, you need an intercessor who's going to speak on your behalf and say, basically, they're with me that not only have they acknowledged my creation, but they have acknowledged their sin, turned from it, asked for forgiveness, and basically received the reconciliation that I provided for them through my work on the cross. This is what he's saying ultimately in the special revelation of God. God's not just giving us an idea of his existence. He's also giving us an idea of how to be reconciled to him, though we've all been far from him at some point. Now, when we consider both of these, both the general revelation and the special revelation of God, I think it was summarized um, perfectly when we consider uh, two of C.S. Lewis's famous quotes. You have probably heard them before, seen them on bumper stickers or have them plastered on your home screen. Okay, But one of them is this. When we think about even desires and the things of this world that point to or detract from the idea of the existence of God, C.S. Lewis said that creatures... God's creation are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger while well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was meant for another world. God said that he's put eternity in the hearts of men and women, though they've not known what he's done from beginning to end. But he says ultimately that in both general revelation and special revelation, he's given us an answer to whether or not there's a God and how to respond to him, how to know him, how to walk with him, how to serve him. He also said this in terms of Christianity, C.S. Lewis did. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Jesus being the light of the world, right? He's saying, it's, I understand the world around me. I understand morality. I understand creation by that which God is exposing to me, exposing me to both in general and special revelation. Now, whether or not this evidence for you is convincing, statistics show that 80 to 85% of people believe in God, even among those who consider themselves religious. The question is, are you among them? Even more, are you living as if God exists? That's a question that we asked last week. Not just do you believe in God, but are you living as if he, in fact, does exist? A.W. Tozer, he was um, a pastor and a theologian who actually said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most th- important thing about us. If we, each person in here, and not only in here, but many churches throughout the city of Chicago are going through the same ser- uh, series, but if each person here were to truly live... <clears throat> as if God exists, and not only as if he exists, but like he cares for us and has a plan for us. The question is, what would actually change in our lives? What would actually change in our families if we lived as if God existed? What would change in our schools and in our workplaces? What would change in our neighborhoods and in our city as we just experienced yet another tragic legal uh, resolution about uh, the murder of a young young man by our force, police force here in the city. What would change if we actually lived as if God existed? What would change if we lived like God existed? things would undoubtedly be better. It would be enough to literally change the world. Evidence of God comes from creation, morality, intelligence, and love. And once we establish that there must be a God, we're ready to discover who God really is. Once we come to grips with the fact that all the evidence points to God. We're able to respond to who he really is. And if you are in a place where you're struggling, or you know people who are struggling and they're sort of teetering on the balance. I love, it seems rudimentary, but Blaise Pascal's wager. How many people have heard of Blaise Pascal's wager? Okay, okay, well, it's basically I'm gonna just summarize it in modern vernacular. You have far better chances that not only he exists, but if he does doesn't exist, um what would I be losing in the life that I'm living for him now? <laughs> to be a moral person, a loving person, a person who serves my community, a person who forgives people, a person, you know, who looks to devote myself to my family and my neighbors, right? but if I'm wrong and I live without there being an idea that there's God and I show up before him in judgment, then I'm going to reap far worse consequences being sent to hell than if I had taken all of the evidence that he had given me for himself and responded to him in kind and put my trust and faith in his son. And so ultimately he says, this is, this is the appeal This is the invitation that he gives to your family members, to your friends, to your co-workers, to your boss, to those that you know and love. And it's summarized by what Jesus himself said, and he gave us a means to respond. Our last scripture, and then we're done. In John 1, starting in verse 1, the writer of the gospel said this. In the beginning was the word, and that word in the Greek was a word that was called logos. And that word logos literally meant the meaning of life, the meaning for of existence, why we're all here and what we're all doing here. He says, in the Greek culture, that's what they understood this communication to be. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping down to verse nine. He said the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. And so that's our answer. Our answer is there is evidence for God. And again, it's hard to condense evidence for God down into this small setting that we have. But we're going to have discussion groups throughout the week, which will give you further resources, further evidences, further um, discussion points. But at the end of the day, there needs to be a response to the God who's shown himself to be alive and real. And when he's shown himself to be alive and real, he says, you must repent of your sin and believe the good news. Repent of your sin, which means turn away from selfish living, turn away from independent living, turn away from everything that the Bible commands as sinful and breaking his law, and turn to the good news that Jesus is God, that Jesus lived, that he died, and he rose again to give you another chance, to give me another chance, and to give this world as we know it another chance. And he says, it's the good news, not just for us in here, but it's the good news for everybody. And if we believe today, you can turn to him today in Jesus' mighty name. And the church said, Amen. All right. So let's come back into worship now. For those of you who are unfamiliar with a a church setting, what we're going to do is we're going to um, go back into songs, times of worship, but then we're also going to give people an opportunity to renew their trust in God, which is through something that we call communion. Communion celebrates the life, burial, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to honor him for that and it's an opportunity for you to turn to him if you've not done so at this point, okay? So if we would stand, and let's honor God together.